In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us through the ages. We would have it this morning. We've heard it read in a language we understand, and we come to you now as children. We come to you, Father, and ask that by your spirit, you would help us to have spiritual understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Oh God, make us more like Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant, as I preach. Protect me from error. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. Oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. You are our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in time of trouble. So we come to you in faith and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Megan and I and our kids moved here five years ago and before that, uh, we lived in North Carolina for 14 years. During um, uh, my time there, I won't speak for Megan here, but during my time there, and she shared a lot of this with me, but I endured the stress of a career change, the stress of graduate school, the stress of moving five times, the stress of having two children, the stress of weird hurricane warnings when you were far away from the ocean, and the stress that comes from Chick-fil-A being closed on Sundays. But there was another, and this is where Megan may not share with me all this, but there was another unique kind of stress that I endured as a resident of that great and wonderful state, and it is the road signs test. Yes, the road signs test. You see, until 2016, when they mercifully ended this practice, every few years, it's not like here, it's every two or three years, when you renewed your driver's license, you had to take a road signs test. Did you know that there are over 50 regulatory and warning signs on public roadways? 50. 50. Now, I consider myself to be a pretty bright person. That's debatable. But for some reason, when I knew I had to take this test, I would totally stress out. I mean, leading up to the big day, I would study and study the signs. I would take practice tests, and then I would try to prepare myself for that random barrage of a dozen or so signs that would fly at you on the screen, and you only had a few seconds to say which one uh, it was. You miss one, and they don't tell you. It just keeps going with other signs. You don't know you're done until you've passed, or the screen goes, please come back another day. It was stressful. Thankfully, by God's grace, I never failed a sign test. But... The sign test, even every two or three years, helped me, helped me to appreciate the importance of signs, of keeping me safe 
on the road and about my own anxiety problems. So the point is that signs are important. Signs are important. So much so that God is even in the business of giving us signs. Signs that point to big truths about us and about him. Signs that keep us moving in the right direction on the road of life. And signs that keep us from danger, danger to ourselves and danger to others. And of particular interest to us today are the specific signs of the new covenant that God has given us. The Christian sacraments of communion and baptism. Here in our text, Paul has taken up the sacrament of baptism. He's actually talking about baptism here. He's demonstrating how it forms a protective hedge around our lives and it serves to remind us and renew us in our battle against what he calls, and you can look back up there in verse eight, philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So having just witnessed a baptism just moments ago, I thought it'd be helpful to us this week to take some time and together pursue a deeper understanding of it. So if you're taking notes, and I know a lot of you like to do so, we're gonna consider baptism as a sign of the covenant, a sign of the new covenant that points to three truths. First of all, baptism points to an inward spiritual reality. An inward spiritual reality. Second, baptism points to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ points to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And lastly, number three, baptism points to our spiritual benefits, our spiritual benefits in salvation. So let's begin with that first truth, that baptism points to an inward spiritual reality. Now, Paul's argument in these verses about the nature and the effect of baptism is a very complex one. One that many scholars believe to be the most complex in all of the New Testament. As you can imagine, many trees have given their lives to writing about this text. Notice that Paul begins his argument in verse 11, and he begins it by referencing circumcision. Now, circumcision, you likely remember, was given by God to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. And it was given to Abraham to be the great sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? The great sign, right, to given to him of a promise, right? It was a a sign of the great covenant promise of God to Abraham to be his God and to be the God of his children and to his children's children. Circumcision sealed the promise that through his children all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham and to his descendants to point to that great promise, to remind them of that great promise, to point to a great spiritual reality. Now, if we think about Colossae, uh, the place to where Paul is writing this letter, it's very likely that there were some there that were insisting that Gentile believers, people who were coming to Christianity from outside of Judaism, but now as Gentiles, they were probably insisting that they receive the sign of circumcision. If you're really part of God's family, if you're really gonna become part of us, then you must be circumcised. If you wanna follow Jesus faithfully, you need 
to get circumcised. Does that sound familiar? You read that throughout the entire New Testament, particularly the book of Galatians. Paul actually calls them the circumcision party. That doesn't sound like a very fun party. And it surely doesn't sound like a good name for a political party either. But he calls them the circumcision party. These, these false teachers were popping up all over the New Testament. And you see Paul over and over again in his letters countering this teaching. But here in Colossians 2, he offers a unique and, and helpful twist to his usual argument. Look in verse 11. He addresses these Gentile believers and look what he says. You were circumcised. You were circumcised. The false teachers are right. You do need to be circumcised if you're going to faithfully follow Jesus. And you know what? Paul says, you've already been circumcised. Congratulations. But you've been circumcised not with the external physical right of circumcision. No, you have the inner spiritual reality to which that old covenant sign pointed. Notice what he says. Yours is a circumcision made without hands. Yours is a circumcision made without hands. That phrase, made without hands, is very important. Everywhere it's used in the New Testament, it's used to establish a contrast between the, the fleeting product of human ingenuity and human effort. Contrast that, right, with the abiding work of the Almighty God. When something is made with hands, it is human and passing. When it is made without hands, it's the sovereign work of God. This circumcision that Paul is referencing here then is none other than what we see in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I'll read it for you. You can read it yourself later in context, but Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, speaking of the new covenant, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So physical circumcision, even from the very beginning, was a sign. It was a sign pointing to spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, which involves what? The work of grace. It involves the work of God, which enables us to love the Lord and to live for him. In fact, you can write this down to read later in context. Paul says the same thing in Romans 2.29. He says, a Jew is one inwardly, not just outwardly. A Jew is one inwardly. And he says this, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter or not by the law. So we can conclude then that physical circumcision was a sign. It was a sign that pointed to an inward spiritual reality. Notice next how Paul there in verse 12 introduces the idea of baptism. He says that the Colossians were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How? By having been buried with Christ in baptism. So now for them, Christians in the New Covenant era, them and us, it's not the outward physical sign of circumcision that points to God's work in hearts. It's the outward physical sign of baptism. Maybe we'll say it this way. Baptism now does duty. For circumcision. It now means the same thing that circumcision once meant. Or as covenant theology, reformed theology, what I believe the Bible clearly teaches, 
is that baptism now replaces circumcision. It speaks to us of the same inner spiritual reality, the circumcision of the heart, the union with Christ in his death and resurrection, the bringing of radical change to all who will believe. So circumcision in the Old Covenant Our Old Testament and baptism in the New Covenant, our New Testament, are signs given to God's people to point to the same spiritual reality. Whether that spiritual reality is evident in the moment, whether it happens right then or right there, or as in the case of children, it will become evident upon personal belief. Paul says in another place in Romans that not all who are children of Abraham are really children of Abraham. Just because you were circumcised doesn't mean that you're part of the true Israel. Likewise, just because you were baptized doesn't mean you were part of the true church, right? Those are signs that point to an inner reality that takes the work of God, not the work of man. So either way, circumcision, baptism are outward physical signs applied to individuals, and it's done to point to the circumcision of the heart. That's Paul's point here. But here's a question I think it's important to ask. How did this circumcision of the heart become theirs? How did the Colossians, the believers, receive it? This brings us to our second point this morning. Baptism points to the redemptive work of Christ. The redemptive work of Christ. Verses 11 and 12 show us this. It shows us how that inward spiritual reality becomes reality for believers. It says, quote, By the putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Pay attention to that phrase in verse 11, the body of flesh. It's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. In fact, it's in the same book. If you turn to Colossians 1.22, you can see it there. It reads... He, speaking of Jesus, has now reconciled you or us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. So when Paul says in verse 11 here, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, he's not equating body of flesh here with our sinful natures. Because... Jesus didn't have a sinful nature, right? Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature. Jesus has no such thing. He always has been and always will remain perfectly holy and righteous. No, Paul is equating the body of flesh, the circumcision of Christ, to his bodily suffering and death upon the cross at Calvary. You see, the sign of circumcision was a bloody ritual. And it was performed on males at eight days. And I tell you what, I'll save you the details. If you don't know what circumcision is or what it entailed, just talk to your parents, right? Um, Mom and dad, if you don't know, look it up. We'll talk about it. But we'll save the details. But think about that. A bloody ritual performed at day eight. What for? As a sign, as a reminder to the Israelites, that if they broke the covenant they had with God, then judgment would fall upon them. This is what the sign meant. 
It pointed to a greater spirituality, but it meant identity as the people of God. People called to holiness and people who would be judged for disobeying the covenant that they had with God as his people. So Paul here is saying that the covenant curse and judgment that was to fall upon a disobedient people actually fell upon Jesus on the cross. You see, Jesus' death there on the cross at Calvary was a type of circumcision. His flesh was torn violently from his body, and he underwent the wrath and the curse of the covenant judgment of God as though he himself were the covenant breaker. But the Colossians, but you and me, we're the actual covenant breakers. We broke God's covenant. Jesus is the true covenant keeper. But oh glory, Jesus is our substitute and he takes on the penalty for us. Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Baptism then points to the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. As he bled and died there, he did so for those who would come to him by faith. Listen, Jesus' death wasn't just an ideal example for the world to see. It wasn't just some blank check provided for random future believers in him to have at their disposal when they finally came to realize it. No, Jesus went to the cross to die for those whom the Father had given to him. All the names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8, all the names written on the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world were on his mind and on his heart as he endured the most cruel and most devastating judgment. He died specifically and particularly for his people. And when he rose victoriously from the grave, three days later, he rose for them. He rose victoriously for you and for me. Just as God worked powerfully in the raising of Jesus from the dead, so he also works powerfully in uniting us to him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. That's the work that baptism points us to. When we witness baptisms, even when we recall our own baptisms, when you think back on your own, That baptism serves to point us primarily and focally to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So while we celebrate covenant promises made to families and their children, and we celebrate professions of faith, when we do both of those things in baptisms, ultimately we're celebrating the work of Jesus. We're celebrating the work of Jesus. And as we do so celebrate, we're called to remember one more thing, I have one more point. This is our third point. I want you to see it from the text. We also remember our spiritual benefits in salvation. As baptism points to an inward spiritual reality and it points us to the redemptive work of Jesus, it also points to spiritual benefits that we receive. Now, Paul points out two of these benefits to us in verses 13 and 14. First, he reminds us that before we came to Christ, We were sick. Is that what he says? No. He says you were dead. 
and the uncircumcision of your heart, of my heart, we were dead, spiritually lifeless. There was no earthly hope for us, but God made us alive together with Christ. Do you understand? Do you understand? You are alive in Christ because God has done what you could not do, what you were totally unable to do. He's resurrected you to new life in him. Nothing else in this world, nothing you have done, you currently do, or will ever do with your own hands can make you spiritually alive. Regeneration, new birth, whatever we would call it this morning, is a work of God. New life, new spiritual life in Christ. That's a wonderful benefit, isn't it? I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was blind, but now I see. I belong to Jesus. But that's not the only one. You can tell I'm a preacher. I'm getting excited. And you're not. <laughs> There's more. He goes on to say that God has forgiven us all of our trespasses. Did you catch that? All of our trespasses. All of your sins are forgiven. All of them. Not some of them. All of them. Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are fully forgiven in Christ. You're fully forgiven. But how? Look at verse 14. Paul answers. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you lived in Paul's day and you were a criminal, which none of you would have been, right? Uh, Except for maybe being a Christian. But you would have been thrown in prison, and prisons then weren't like they are now. You weren't hidden away somewhere in a plot of land far away from the city. You were right in the open, usually under bridges or in other public areas, and you relied on family to come and bring you food and take care of you. The state didn't do that. You need your family to do it. And the cell that you were in, no matter how many of you were in, the Romans would take this record of debt and nail it above that cell. And on this record of debt... Sound familiar with Christ on the cross, right? Claim to be king. This record of debt was put right there above it so you could walk by and say, what did that terrible person do? He did this, he did that. She did this, she did that. Wow, they were really bad. Do you see the point that Paul's making? Jesus takes that record of debt and he transfers it to the cross. Nails it to the cross. Every sin, every sin, every sin, he died to exhaust the wrath of God for you. And he nailed it to the cross. He took your sin upon himself and he gives you his righteousness. Amen. 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 I know we're Presbyterians, but we can do this. Christians, listen to me. Because I have to say this before I go into how I want to put all this together. Because some of you might be thinking this or some of you might even be living this way. Forgiveness in Christ, justification by faith, is not a license to sin all the more that grace may abound. May it never be. Knowing forgiveness is a motivation to repent when we do sin. It's a motivation to confess our sins. I don't have to worry about God casting me away. He'll hear me and he'll forgive me. He'll answer. 
You'll forgive my sins. Because you have a new heart, because you know you belong into the Lord, you can know that God will restore you. And by his spirit, he's gonna enable you to more and more be like Christ as you seek to live for him in this world. Grace is not a crutch. Grace is everything. So baptism points us to spiritual benefits and salvation because it points us to the redemptive work of Christ and to an inward spiritual reality. So you might be wondering, why then did you baptize an infant earlier? Why do you as a a church, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, why do you apply this sign of baptism to infants and to children Well, my answer, and I'll explain it, but the answer itself might surprise you. We do so for the same reason that circumcision was applied to covenant children in the Old Testament. We do it for the same reason. We believe that the whole Bible tells one story. The whole Bible tells one story, the great story of how the covenant God of the universe takes a people for himself and saves them through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You can think about it this way, the whole Old Testament, Old Covenant points us forward to Jesus Christ and then we see him clearly there in the Gospels and risen in glory at the beginning of Acts and the the whole New Testament then goes on to reveal the realities of salvation for those who belong to him, what it looks like to walk in the New Covenant, what it looks like to live for him until he returns again. And as we've seen from our text this morning, the the sign of baptism replaces the sign of circumcision. And nowhere in the New Testament do we see children as now being excluded from the new covenant or from the sign of the new covenant. Rather, we see the New Testament reminding us that children are included. When the disciples would forbid children from coming to Jesus in Mark 9, what did Jesus do? He rebuked them. And he welcomed the children. On the day of Pentecost, during his sermon that day, uh, the revealing of the reality of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. The new covenant is here. What does Peter do? He reminds them that the new covenant promise is for them and their children. That's for you and your children. And that's repeated throughout the New Testament. Even Paul in Acts 16, proclaiming the gospel to a Gentile to the Philippian jailer and says, believe and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then what does he do? He believes and then Paul baptized him and his household. You see, and this is what I wanna make sure we understand. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew who's now believing that Jesus is the Messiah, who's been born again. So think about it this way. It would have been unfathomable for them for these converts to Christianity to think that their children were now somehow excluded from receiving the covenant sign of baptism. Which is why you cannot find one verse in the New Testament that says that children are excluded from the sign of the new covenant. For centuries, the church faithfully practiced this. New believers were baptized, and so were their children. Praise God for new converts. Even Jews who believed the first time were baptized, right? And then their households, so were their children. And look, we don't have time, it's not a history class, but although this practice was perverted by the Roman church, uh, like so many other great doctrines of the faith, I want you to notice that the reformers of the 16th century, Lutherans, Anglicans, the Reformed Church, Presbyterians alike, 
They didn't abolish the practice. Rather, what did they do? They restored it to its biblical precedent. They restored it, just like they did with the other doctrines that had been perverted, like the authority of Scripture and justification by faith. If you want to talk about how believer baptism has risen so much in the last few hundred years, I'd be happy to have that discussion with you. But here's the most important thing I can say all morning, that we as a church, including your elders, all your officers, we don't believe this issue should be divisive. It should not divide Christians today. The covenant baptism of children might be new to you. You might be the first time you've ever seen one happen or heard someone talk about it. Or perhaps you've studied the issue and you just don't agree. Praise God. I mean that. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you remain here. All are welcome with us as followers of Jesus. If you're a parent with children, I promise you that I and the elders will rejoice with you when you present your children for baptism after they make a profession of faith just as much as we'll rejoice with families who present their infants and their young children for covenant baptism. We do this because we affirm what I think is the heart of this whole message and the heart of what Paul's getting at. Baptism does not solely signify what we do. It does not solely signify any new faith that we profess. Rather, and it's clear from Colossians 2, baptism points to the great covenantal and redemptive work of Christ and what he has done for us. That's hard to hear as a 21st century American. It's not about you. It's not all about you. Don't get me wrong. It's wonderful to be part of the family of God and to be received into his family. It's beautiful and wonderful. But baptism is primarily about God and what he has done through Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we're presented as we are occasionally with the sacrament of baptism, just as we were this morning, I want you to rejoice. That's why I invite you to celebrate and rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice because God has worked in our lives and in the lives of families, in the lives of children, in the lives of those who've turned from darkness into the marvelous light because the Spirit has made them alive. We thank God for baptism. We thank God for the protective hedge that it forms around our lives. We thank God for how baptism points us to him. That points us to the great reality that we belong to him. So if you hear nothing else from this morning, hear this. You belong to Jesus Christ. All the spiritual blessings are yours in Christ. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?